it's as if there's a mentality that says, well, at least they've got a job, right? No, I wouldn't say that about my family members or my children. So why do I say that about someone across the world? There's a reckoning that has to happen. And and what my hope is, is that social media and this visibility will, and, and an education point like a lowest wage will start to empower consumers to feel uh, that they understand clearly the impact that they're making through their purchase. That's the long-term goal. Conscious consumption is one of the hottest trends in retail marketing. We shop to make a difference, have an impact, build a better world. Sign me up, right? But many of the businesses that claim to be doing good are running on business models or operating principles that are hardly disruptive. Instead, they're counting on consumers' desire to both have their cake and eat it too. The more companies can convince us that shopping equals advocacy, the more we'll buy. So with all that said, I was curious what a company would look like beyond the marketing pulling at my heartstrings, running with the full awareness of what it means to truly disrupt exploitation. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with humans who navigate life's challenges and lead in their own way. Our goal is to learn how they address the burdens they carry, how they learn from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. My journey into conscious consumption really came into fruition in my mind when I was pregnant with my first child, like, shoot, I think it's been 15 years now. And I recall being hyper-focused on the chemicals in the cleaning products we used at home while attending an Earth Day festival here in San Diego. I know how very, very granola of me. I discovered a San Diego-based company that made products cleaning all the things from our toilets to our kitchen counters to our cars. This company spoke to all of my pain points at just the right time. I traded out cleaners deemed harsh and toxic with gentler cleaners mixed with essential oils like lavender and orange. I stocked up on all of their products. What I also loved about these products is for every purchase, they donated to a local environmental charity. Win, 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 right? I supported a local business. I had products that did not harm the environment or my family and I supported charities caring for the environment. In addition, my purchases helped my system feel calmer. My house felt less dangerous. I felt like a good mom-to-be because of what I bought. And my purchases not only cleaned my house safely, they made me feel worthy and good enough. Now, I still feel good about switching up my cleaning products back then and working with that company, and I continue to be very mindful of the products that I buy today. But looking back on this time, it intersects with something I see in a lot of my work with clients, this obsession with being pure, clean, and good. It shows up a lot around the choices they made with food, but it's since expanded to the things we buy from clothes to cleaning products and coffee, just to name a few. Our purchases can help businesses and causes we care about. Absolutely. And I believe wholeheartedly that we can make a difference with how we spend our time and resources. But (laughs) 
If my feeling good about myself is the main driver behind why I consume and buy, I know I need a hard pause before I purchase. I am seeing more and more how quickly my purchases can default to centering around me without a deeper regard for who makes the products I buy or the real environmental impact of my purchases. It's so easy for any of us to get stuck in a toxic marketing loop that hooks our worthiness with what we buy. And these purchases that use descriptors like organic and ethically made and fair trade do not let us off the hook on our responsibility to dig deeper and ask more critical questions to the businesses we frequent about their wages, their environmental impact, and their supply chain. If not, I know I end up buying into the very things I want to stand against. And I also believe we need to be better BS detectors in the marketing we consume and what we tell ourselves. And asking better questions of the businesses I frequent helps me think more critically about how I lead my business while supporting other business leaders. A company that honors transparency and relationship will have the answers to our questions without defaulting to marketing speak or trendy buzzwords. And I found this to be true when I interviewed Audrey McLaughlin, who's the founder of Frank and Eileen a couple years ago. And when I heard today's guest speak a few years ago transparently about his own mental health struggles while holding his commitment to choose honesty over perfection when it comes to transparency in his business, I added him to my wish list of guests to the show. Now, Barrett Ward is the CEO of Able, a fashion lifestyle brand. And as the visionary behind the rapidly growing Nashville-based company, disrupting the fashion industry with a social conscience, Ward was inspired to start ABLE with the mission of creating sustainable economic opportunities for women. Now, while living in Ethiopia, Ward and his wife, Rachel, saw firsthand how extreme poverty forced many young women to make difficult choices for money. They wanted to give women the chance to earn a living with dignity. In 2010, they began ABLE by employing women who had overcome the sex industry to make handmade scarves. Now, Abel has since grown into a lifestyle brand carrying beautiful leather bags. I have one of my own, which I cherish. Jewelry, denim. I've got to put my props in for their jeans jackets. I adore mine. Other apparel and shoes with a primary focus on employing and empowering women in Ethiopia, Brazil, India, Mexico, and Nashville, Tennessee. Beyond adding new categories and communities of impact, Ward and Abel have also grown in their ambition for social justice. In 2018, Abel became the first brand to publish their lowest wages, creating the hashtag Publish Your Wages movement and providing complete transparency to empower and protect the fashion industry's vulnerable workers, most of whom are women. Now listen for Barrett's experience with rapid growth and the impact it had on his mental health. I suspect many of you will relate with us. Pay attention to how Barrett befriended his fear of failure and embraced transparency and honesty instead of perfection. Notice Barrett's deep connection to his mission that allows for mistakes and lots of grace. 
Now, please welcome Barrett Ward to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Barrett, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. As I mentioned to you before we started recording that I had you in mind when I started creating this podcast to have you on the show. There's so much that I want to dig into that I know those listening are going to get a lot out of, feel a lot of validation um, and be challenged too. So I'd love to start because we start really light and breezy here on the show. Just kidding. Oh, man. Let's do it. <laughs> We're gonna, we go deep quickly. And I want you to take us back to the t- to the moment when your then two-year-old found you on the floor of your bathroom crying. What were you feeling in that moment? And what feel that face down experience? Yeah, I I, I mean, we, we first connected uh, with that story at the Yellow Conference. Yep. And and I I talk about it on stage um, because frankly, I, I think more than any other thing when I'm speaking is I feel like I don't want anybody in the room to feel like, man, that guy's got it all together. And because he had it all together, that's why mm. Abel has succeeded. Um, and instead, uh, these are all opportunities to those, those opportunities for me are ones that, um, I just am looking for, uh, people to not feel alone. I just don't want people to feel alone. And the more that I can tell the hard part of my story or the challenging things that I've been through, um, there's somebody that needs to hear that way more probably than, um, we just crushed it and grew 50% this year. I couldn't agree more. So I do tell that story. I mean, the truth is when I, when we started able uh we were a non-profit for a few years and then in 2014 we had to switch to a for-profit and i had never run a for-profit i was a non-profit guy i kind of thought you only do good in the world through non-profits and um and so all of a sudden we were forced to become a for-profit and that just proved in 2014 to be more stress than i was able to bear at that point. And the story is, I can giggle about it a little bit now, but the story is that um, my daughter, Lena, walked in the bathroom as I'm just sitting there, laying there, sobbing in fetal position and just stopped in her tracks and looking at me, wondering what's wrong with dad. Um, And it was just because I... Apparently at that age, which I guess was about 40 years old, 41 years old, didn't have the emotional muscles to deal with how difficult this was. You know, I, I during that year, I read a bl- or, or an article where it talked about how many leaders were on and CEOs were on Lexapro or, you know, antidepressants. and and one of the statements was that people look at leaders or entrepreneurs and think to themselves, wow, look how brave they are riding that lion. And entrepreneurs are thinking, how the heck did I get on this lion and how do I stop it from killing me? And, and that is definitely where I was at in 2014. And there was more to come after that. But yeah, that is where I was at in 2014. And when I heard you share that story, and, and I'm grateful to hear your motivation behind it. I knew right away, like sharing stories like that, it's not just, it's not about connection for me. It's also, it saves lives, it saves businesses. And mm-hmm. and if we don't feel alone, and because there's still so much stigma 
not just around mental health, but around struggle and around doubt, especially for folks that are holding higher titles or higher roles or credentials. And so I was Mm -hmm. so grateful to hear you just, hi, my name's Barrett. And here's my face down moment. <laughs> and and you, and to really <laughs> yeah. own it and not just as a hook, but as a message. And I think that is so important. We need more leaders doing that on repeat. But you know, again, you talked about switching, but I want to dig into a little bit more of that switch from nonprofit to for-profit. But in that moment where your daughter found you, really what was going on with you? What were you feeling in that moment? I just frankly was mental mushrooming. I, 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 you know, that moment was, it was actually a year. Mm. I had an entire year of that. Um, so we're, we're not talking about a brief moment that I recovered from quickly. It was an entire year of 2014 where I was probably sleeping two to three hours a night. And, um, I just didn't know the solution. And to the point of stigma, I thought, I wouldn't say that I thought anybody that took antidepressants were crazy. I just kind of had this thought of, well, that's not for me, right? Like, you know, I'm I'm 42. I don't need to start that now, do I? And it was actually a friend of mine named Gabby Blair. Um, who runs a conference called the Alt Conference. It's a design conference. And she said to me, um, we're down at Atlanta and uh, over breakfast, she said, look, Barrett, when people get a broken bone, they put a cast on their arm and, and taking an anti-anxiety type medication is nothing more than a cast and you need a cast right now. And you may stay on it for your whole life, or you may use it as a cast and come off of it in a period of time. And all of that's fine, but simply put, you need a cast. And so the, the hope was that I never wanted to be in a situation again where I allowed my circumstances to take me over. That was the bottom line of what I wanted to accomplish. I didn't want to allow this beast of a business to take over my life. You talked about, you know, this wasn't just a one face down moment, but this was a year, a year of you saying, oh, not me, what's going on? This is, I I should, what were some of the shoulds and some of the things you were saying to yourself until your body just said, no, we're, we're doing a hard stop. What kind of, I'd love for you to, to yeah, speak to that. I, I did not think medication was for me. I did think that <clears throat> I was not competent or strong enough to be uh, a business owner. And I wasn't com- competent enough to handle the stress of the challenges. And we had so many challenges that year. But what I learned was, is that at the end of the day, what I was calling a challenge might actually just been the normal practice of business. And if that's the normal practice of business, then looking at a challenge and just said, saying, you know, I don't think it's cheesy to call challenges opportunities. I, I, I don't, I think, but, but it's just as long as it's not put in this overly toxic kind of like, Hey, every problem is an opportunity to win. It's more of a just how do I look at this challenge? Do I, do I just look at this and say, you know what, this is going to happen. I, I, whenever I have a great season or things are not challenged, there's going to be a day again, that's going to have a challenge. So when that comes, if I look at that as something that is brutal, then I'm going to look at the successes as something that's unbelievably great. And I'm going to ride the highs and, and low the lows. And I don't want to do that. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to allow 
that business to affect me that deeply, I guess. It's hard. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it's hard, right? Because a lot of people, I heard, oh, I'm taking this too personally. And I'm like, I kind of call BS to that because I'm like, it is personal. Like you're pouring the best of you into this business, this vision, this movement, whatever the thing is. And yeah, but, but there's not enough people talking about the suck. I mean, this just the suck of yeah. di- whether it's disappointment or betrayal that happens or supply chain issues or or personal right. personal tra- like whether it's loss or health issues. And there's this message, this toxic positivity that you touched on. That's like yeah. chin up, suck it up. This, you know, the the darkness of supremacy culture, right? The rugged individualism. I've got this, right? And you had it until you did it. <laughs> yeah. And that toxic positivity is what makes me feel less than. Mm. It's when I acknowledge that challenges are a part of the normal course of of business that I can put them in a box and just say, um, okay, it does suck. But also when I go home you know, what is my reality? And, and, you know, honestly, I had to, I kind of do this thing. I, I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase away motivated or toward mo- towards motivated, but I'm definitely away motivated, which means I'm, I'm motivated by not failing. And some people are motivated by succeeding, but what wakes me up and gets me moving in the morning is just making sure I don't screw this thing up. And then I get to work and get motivated and I figure it out and I'm, I'm, motivated by good things happening and having a positive impact in the world. But I say that to say, um, you know, when I come home, I wanted to be able, one of the big markers for me of, am I putting the challenges of work in the right box was that if I could literally shut it and come home and be with my family and be present. Mm -hmm. And, and if, if, if the stress continued to a point where I could not engage with my family at a healthy level, then I knew that I needed to go deeper. And, you know, which I've certainly sat with folks like you and therapists and worked through all that, but I never wanted to get to a place where my barometer of home was shaken Mm -hmm. um, because of work, you know? I get that. And I I also, what what do you think about people? what, What do you think about the methodology of of just saying, okay, first off, I'm, this is not going to kill me. You know, like, do, do, do you, do you think that's positive? Hmm. Like, like, because it's kind of like the idea of when, you know, your dad, dad said to you, listen, when you go ask that girl out, you're, what you're ultimately thinking right now is that she's going to kill you. Hmm. Um, she's not, don't worry. She's, she's just either going to say no or yes. And in hmm. the same way, I, I would have to kind of get myself to a place of like, hold on, I'm not going to die. I mean, that's first, second level up. If the business fails, what's going to ultimately happen? What are the real consequences? And some of those can be significant for people, right? Like for a period of time, my home was on the line of credit, but, um, you know, so I just, I'm just asking you, I'm curious, how do you think about mm-hmm. baselining those yeah. thoughts of, you know, what, what could happen if it goes poorly? You know, I have a little shift of that. I, I, I used to kind of approach it that way. And what really started to stick for me and also what I work with the leaders that I work with is, you know, it may kill us, but I'm with you, <laughs> you know, and I got that from, from mentor and the founder of internal family systems, Richard Schwartz, who really like kind of realized he had a life and death experience, um, which he shared on the show. And when he helped me kick off the podcast sharing about how his, his approach to, 
to therapy and to healing saved his own life. So there's this element of, you know, the business might go, but I'm with you and this is going to suck. It's going to hurt. So there's a befriending of the fear. There's a befriending of it. And Mm. there's this other part, like, is it worth pushing through just to succeed? And I'm from the Midwest. So it's like, we do blow snow in below zero and do the things you push through. And there's that, there's a little bit of like, again, more rugged individualism where I was holding onto the bone to the point like, why? So there's this element of, yeah, whatever, you know, we're going to go forward and it might blow up, but I'm with you to, to those parts of me that are terrified. And then what support do I need? So there's a befriending of this and then saying what's not worth it you know is is my pursuit of like is failing and letting something go going to move me towards what matters most and sometimes those it's and it's hard for leaders when they're in public positions or have invested so much time and money but i think so that's my my tweak on it it's like yeah so so sometimes it's like will this kill me and it's like okay no like she she just might reject me right in the date like i might just get a rejection <laughs> you know when i when i send pitches out to people yes this won't i check those parts but when the stakes are high and it's impacting well mm. well-being or for me my kind of my livelihood ther- my, my thermostat is my family if they're not mm-hmm. well usually i'm doing so, you know i i have to check and go what am i am i contributing to that so yeah. there is a befriending of the fear but there's also this a little bit of a surrender saying this could go south and if i try to plan yep. and control everything so that i revert i engineer the vulnerability out of it like Brené brown talks a lot about then i'm screwed right mm-hmm. versus okay right. i've done what i can so it's i it's more like i'm with you so i said to those parts of me and I talk to my, you know, the people around me or I work with the leaders saying, okay, who needs to know? Are we in? <laughs> knowing the risk. And so there's a befriending and a knowing. And there's a, also a befriending the suck. I think if we bypass the suck. And then lastly, is it worth our well-being and our family? Sometimes we have to release things if it's, you know, what, yep. what's, the, what's the cost just to win, to cross the finish line? Yeah. And then, and then you know, and then, there, I mean, first of all, I love all that. That's really helpful. And and then there's those times where, you know, the cho- the choice to be able to leave those circumstances is not a privilege that everybody has either. You got it. You know, um, and and so then how do you handle that period of time? What what do you man? I want to run this podcast because I want to ask you some questions. I need to I need to lay down and be counseled. But I, I'll just ask you that one other question. And so how do you talk to people about? when they are stuck and they don't have a choice, but the ship is challenged and they may want to get out, they may want to get off, but they're writing it down. What, what, how do you handle that? I think we always have choices, even if they all suck. And as long as we have agency, we're going to be okay. Mm. If we lose our agency, we lose our hope and then things get really dark. And so I think that's important and it's important not to do comparative suffering, but to be really realistic and and compassionate and not you know again comparing circumstances is can go go south fast so so to me i think it's just maintaining the agency and the dignity um in myself and others is is so essential even if everything on on the table blows yeah that's really good that's really good that helps so you had a year of a big suck you had your face down yep. you, you had and you and i think this is an important message too that you had people outside of you saying like reflecting back to you 
that what you were doing wasn't getting you out of the suck. It was making it worse. And you know, you were kind of like, this isn't for me. And some of those stigmas around meds, around mental health struggle, you had to face in yourself. So I'm curious, what are the practices that you have in place now that support your mental well-being, but also support those that you lead, their physical and mental well-being? Well, you know, the first thing I would say is, is having somebody like you in my life, like, uh, and that's the truth. There's my permission for your business, but having a, um, a mentor was critical. Mm. Um, somebody so that had been through what I had been through. Um, it, it, it couldn't be someone that hadn't frankly been what I had been through. I needed a, a mentor that absolutely could say, Hey, I know how you feel. Um, here's what's real. Kind of, as you say, here's the suck that is real here. Here's where you're mental mushrooming it and you're taking it to a place that's, that's, that's not going to happen. That's not where things are going. So a business mentor was critical for me. And I think in our company, we think the same way is that people need, uh, first of all, we have an HR director and we think that's really critical, a voice, a safe voice for everybody to go to. And Jerry is, she's phenomenal. Um, and kind and generous and, um, and people feel safe with her. So having that person appointed in the business is just a critical institution. And then, and then mentorship up and down the line where people feel like there's someone that they can go to, to become more competent and more hopeful and learn how to train more uh, or what learn through training more. Um, Mm -hmm. I I feel like all those institutions make people feel healthier. And, and a part of growing is is important to us. I think the key to trauma-informed cultures is where things can be talked about and normalized. Yeah. And if we don't feel like we're the only one, we got to have that common humanity. And, you know, it's interesting you bring up HR and, you know, it's been, a, it's an interesting bag because I've had clients, both clinical and leadership spaces where HR was that safe space to land. And it absolutely wasn't that safe space to land. Hmm. Um, so I'm what, you know, just depending on relationships on boundaries, I mean, you can have titles and supposed tos, but what's really lived. So you said lovely things about your HR, but what, where's the accountability in even folks who are in those positions where the boundaries and the checks to help create and cultivate and keep your work environment, a space that does welcome struggle, welcome doubt, welcome conflict and accountability. You know, it's funny, the timely question. I just met with uh, a woman this morning that it was her second day. And she talked about having sat around the boardroom table yesterday with the marketing team. There's 15 people there. And she said, I have never experienced an environment where there was no flex. She said, everybody at the table, the two leaders, Marissa and Jen, were absolutely humble. They were listening to ideas. There was no directive. It was collaborative. And so I would just say that that is an, an environment that we have strived to create. Um, we, we talk about that and have that conversation consistently um, at staff meetings and with new hires that you know, at the, if, if you're at the top of the pyramid and not the mission, then your ego is going to get in the way. And, and we want that boardroom table to look like if someone shares an idea that's, that somebody else disagrees with, um, that 
that the disagreeer is good at um, acknowledging what they've said, challenging back, and that the person that shared the idea is good at not throwing out a passive aggressive, oh, fine. Yeah. Okay. No, 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 that's fine. But instead, able to receive and hear. And so we really, you know, honestly, Rebecca, I don't think I'm great with the handbook and showing everybody exactly what to do. But I think what we do well is actually practice those things. We, we literally model those behaviors and demonstrate exactly how it would go. So when we talk about um, boundaries, we talk about, for example, now look, we may be in a conversation where I say, hey, could you get that to me by Friday? And that doesn't mean get that to me by Friday at all costs, no matter how much stress you have. What that means is a genuine question of, can you get that to me by Friday? And you need to either say, um, you know what, I can, or I don't think I can, or let me go look at my calendar and think through it and see if I can fit it in. And you have every right to come back to me as the CEO and say, you know what, I don't think I can fit that in. Could you help me look through my priorities and see if you think it's more important or not? And I can say to you, you know what, you're right. You can't fit it in. And this is not as important as the things you're doing. Or I can look at you and say, you know what, could you please move this to next week and focus on this to get it done by Friday? Would that work? And, and as exhaustive as that and boring as that may sound what I just did, we, in modeling that, I think we really demonstrate to people, your voice is super valued here mm -hmm. at ABLE. Okay. So my brain's floating a little bit, but so no, that's not boring to me. Like this is the sexiest stuff for me. This is what I talk about day in and day. I'm like, yes. Okay. So it's one thing to do that, but like, how do you teach that? You, you live it. I hear that it's not just spoken. So you've got action. So there's definitely sincerity words and actions match up. And that means that builds trust because without trust, you, you can't have vulnerability. It's harder to have vulnerability. So how do you hire for that? How do you, because there's an element of mentoring and calling people up and in and building those skills. Cause we were talking before the show started, what a, you know, talking about our polarized world right now. So this is the antithesis of what we're living in the broader culture. How do you hire and cultivate that and not just profess it? How do you live it too? So, I mean, the, the second half of that, of living it is frankly, as you've said, the accountability is if you just taught and talked to everybody that that's how you do it, you better do it that way or you're going to lose trust, number one. And, and, and what we tell people is if, if you see us not living up that value, then you should run like uh, the, the Dickens to get out the door and, and go find a place that actually lives out that value, number one. Um, number two, I think in the interview process, um, you can interview all day long and end up not having the right person. And it's, it, and we've made that mistake. You know, we, we all have made that mistake in hiring. In fact, hiring is really, really hard. <laughs> oh, gosh, um, so, hard. so I don't even want to say that we've got this methodology that's, that's worked it out. I think moreover that somebody told me this once, and I, I've learned to completely agree with this, that you can have the worst interview and they end up being the best employee and you can have the best interview and they end up being the worst employee. And so it is all about the due diligence of talking to people that they've worked with before. You have to get recommendations. I just don't believe in uh, doing interviews without following up with people that they've worked with, both peers and 
those that report to them and those that are senior to them in their previous jobs. And I think you find a whole lot out if you're willing to take the time to ask those questions of, um, would they fit into this culture or how would they handle this kind of a situation? Um, because I've never met anybody that has said to how would you handle this difficult situation? I've never met anybody in an interview that goes, you know what? I don't think I could handle that, to be honest. Um, so those recommendations are pretty critical. When you've gotten it wrong, even with good people that just it's when you've gotten it wrong, how do you know? Yeah. And how quickly do you and your, does your organization take action? First of all, we've done this incredibly wrong over time, um, first of all. Um, but for me, it really is seeing how people vulnerably um, are able to collaborate with others. You know, if I see it's it just those moments of ego popping up of saying, you know, I, I just a few days ago had a call to a few group of people where I said, um, hey, I'll make my, myself available um, in the next couple of days. There's only a couple of blocks I can't move. Here they are. And I noticed everybody followed suit except one person. Um, and they kind of reacted with more of protective of their time and more like, well, listen, I'm just really busy. And, and that as a lead statement is not informative, right? Um, I'm just really busy. I just... But I don't know. I mean, I can see. And so at that point, I think the most important thing is to go sit down with that person and talk about it openly and vulnerably and say, hey, here's what I saw. Um, I want to test my assumptions because I don't I, I think you're an amazing person. I always, you know, often love how you communicate, but that was not your best. But I also know that maybe something could be going on or maybe you're frustrated with something or maybe I've done something to frustrate you. So can you please share with me where you're at? I just think the most important thing is to jump on those things and don't let them fester. That's probably what I've done out of being a two on the Enneagram the most is just avoid stuff like conflict like that. But um, but I think the most important thing is to not let those things sit. So I want to shift a little bit back to what you're talking about when Abel had to make this shift, or at least was recommended to make this shift. And you did from mm. nonprofit to profit. And in, in my research for our conversation, what came up again, again, there, there was parts of you that really had judgments around for profit and mm -hmm. do and, and doing good. And, and I think there's some probably what I'm learning was still legitimate concerns in you know, our world and just how thing in for profit organizations and capitalism and all the things but um, walk me through, though, how that shift impacted your workload, but also, you know, shifts in perspe perceptions, even like your judgments about for-profit companies. So just, again, does the transition itself, but also how you faced your judgments and where are you at today? Yeah, I think a lot of my judgment on for-profits being um, that they're they're not there to do good in the world was born out of the fact that in my 20s, I was a very, um, the, I, I kind of thought the only purpose of work was money. You know, I mean, as ridiculous as that sounds, I was so only wanting to work to make as much money as I could. And, and that was the only definition of success. Um, I didn't even realize till I was 30 that I hated my sales job. Um, I was making a ton of money doing it. And I just thought making a ton of money, being good at it, it must be what I'm supposed to do. Um, and it took some people speaking into my life to go, I think you're miserable um, to help me understand that, you know? Um, and I also kind of had a 
a moment of faith when I was 32 that kind of said, look, are you doing what you do just for the praise of man? And if not, why, you know, and that, that really was where I was at. Um, so I say all that and say, when I turned, when we started able, you know, as a nonprofit, that was the lane that I had been in since I was 30 years old to about 41. And uh, I enjoyed it. I, I, my wife and I lived in Ethiopia for a year. Um, I traveled extensively and in, in developing countries and that raising money and holding fundraisers and doing those kind of things was the way you do good in the world. And when we started able, uh, I took that, as you kind of said, judgment or prejudice into being a for-profit and what I quickly found out. Um, was that it really is all about the leadership team and their values. You know, it's a hundred percent about that. Um, because frankly, uh, I think I might be biased in saying this, but I really believe we have a company that just will never budge on its values to the degree of doing crazy things like publishing, you know, news about able that's not so good sometimes because we want to have a genuine and honest and transparent conversation with our our customers um much like when i said speaking from stage we want to be able to let people know look the message we're not wanting to put into the world is that you have to be perfect before you can be honest um we still live out those values and it's because we have an incredible leadership team that's bought into it and at every step we've been rewarded by being open and honest with our customers as we see them saying, look, we knew you were not perfect. Thanks for being honest about it and sharing with us um, what you're going through and what you can do better. Absolutely. Um, a couple of questions too. You've referred kind of your leadership team and your structure and you kind of even referenced top down. And, and one thing I've been curious in, as I work with organizations or those that are leading them, you know, is do we, is this top down working or is it more of like you talked about the conference table, this circular approach? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, where people have different roles, there's still, you know, different responsibilities. H- how is the structure or how did the switch in Able's structure um, impact the reach of Able, but mostly and in particularly the women who work for Able? How did, you know, how, I'd love for you to talk about that on a micro level. Well, I think it's first important to note that we were about three or four people from when we launched in October of 2010 until uh, 2014, we became a for-profit. And when we, in 2014, we went from those three or four people to about a hundred in 2019. And so we grew like crazy. Um, and, and I really do believe that that culture and our mission attracted, uh, people from all over the country, the top talent. And frankly, the top talent every single time was a woman. And I think it's because you know, our mission is, is women benefiting. It's creating jobs for women, uh, many who have overcome extraordinary circumstances and it's women's fashion company. Right. And so, um, so we've just developed a team that's super mission oriented. And I think that value for us has created a lot of margin for mistakes. Um, and it's it's created a lot of forgiveness if we make if we do make leadership errors or if we do, you know, screw up cash flow for a couple of months and have to figure out a new way to get around it early on in our business. 
you know, having that bedrock of, of a sincere mission, I think is critical and, you know, not every, and I think our mission sounds noble. Uh, I think every company has a mission and it just has to be articulated and sincere. And as long as you have that and, and, and your people see you living out that value, um, I think there's a lot of grace for, for mistakes. You know, when we first started, we were working with just a few women coming out of the commercial sex industry in Ethiopia. And that quickly in a couple of years grew to, uh, about 30 women and, and we were close to them. We were able to see the impact. We were able to manage the impact and, and work with the women, uh, to make sure that, uh, you know, and learn from them to make sure that the benefit that we were saying we were having was real. Let me pause you there. Yeah. It talked to me about the process of them giving you feedback and you receiving. So this isn't just, we're doing good and we're going to make your lives better and we're going to rescue, you know, like that, that trope, that's not more than a trope, it's still happening. Talk to me about that relationship of back and forth and really hearing from the folks that you are wanting to serve and help. So, you know, frankly, I'm a massive believer in partnering with the right people in order to do that piece well, because for example, we're talking about a lot of women with trauma here and, and trauma is not something that unless you are an expert in that, that you're going to be able to really walk someone through, I can think I'm a good guy and and a good listener and ask some decent questions, but that, that it wasn't at all about what we did at able to ensure that it's about who we partnered with. And mm. we worked with in the beginning, partnered with organizations on the ground and, that were Ethiopian run that were excellent at working with these women to understand that very question is the impact of a good job, good healthcare, et cetera, having the impact that we want to have. And if you're just willing to listen and hear the answer and and correct where you can, then it's not that crazy. How did the information then flow with those organizations that were, you know, that you partnered with? Like if you got feedback, what would, so you needed to tweak something or adjust something. How, can you just talk me through that process of like, oh, wow, this is the intention, but oh, wait, here's the impact. It's not the desired impact. So what do we, how do you, how did you receive that feedback and what did you do with that? Well, you know, one of the things we had to start doing was institutionalizing it to your point. As we grew, um, working with that local nonprofit and then managing it well, um, was, was manageable through the size of organization that we were. But as we started to grow and working with hundreds of women, we realized, hold on, we're losing visibility. These personal relationships with 30 women isn't. Um, scaling to make sure that we know that everybody's cared for well. And, and that's actually when we started um, something that we called accountable. And, and the purpose of accountable was to actually go to the ground, meet with the women and do very specific audits with, you know, strong diagnostics and, and strong reporting one of the reasons we created is because most audits don't actually visit you on the ground. And, to, and if they do, it's only once every four or five years often. Oh, um, I can't name any names of organizations or SEALs that you might think visit people, but almost none of them do. Um, and so we just said, we, we can't have confidence if we're not sending someone to sit down with the employees and 
protected situations where they can be honest about what their impact is. And as an example, one manufacturer we were working with that we actually thought was the most solid um, in their mission, uh, they actually had a lot of instances of abuse. Women were talking about when they were sick, their paychecks were withheld. Um, they did they did not receive any of the paid time off or sickness that they were promised. And so, you know, it was really sad and and to hear those kind of things happening. But as disheartening as it was, it was also heartening because that's exactly why we created it accountable to make sure that we were rooting out um, any type of potential abuses that we didn't know of because we weren't there. Um, and so we tried to work with that manufacturer and uh, to, to restore uh, things back to health. But you know what? As you can often imagine, it's not like we don't see toxic leadership anywhere in the world or churches <laughs> crumbling because of big male ego. And and this manufacturer was not willing to correct those things. They blame shifted and we had to part ways, you know, and that's tough. But guess what? The other four manufacturers were crushing it. They were providing a living wage, health care, et cetera. And the impact that they said they were having was the same one that the women reported. So for us, it's all about actual systemic auditing of our manufacturing partners. Uh, thank you for for going there with me. So I want to get a little more granular about the accountable report, uh, which really is this challenge to everyone. So it wasn't just for ABLE, but it's a challenge to everyone in the fashion industry supply chain to be transparent about their wages, their working conditions, and their equitable yeah. practices towards women. So you, you can walk me through the intentions of this scorecard. Um, but I'm curious, you know, and talk to me a little bit about, you know, you published your own scorecard, even when it wasn't a good score. Is this what you were just <laughs> referenced, you know, and yeah. you know, how did you arrive at that decision? Cause I, cause I could see, and there's, I'm not a cynical person. I'm very hopeful. I'm very realistic, but there is a little part of me because maybe because of working, you know, working in advertising and politics, it's like, yeah, just kind of say, yeah, we, you know, this is how we grew. Like I could see that being manufactured and I'm not putting that on you at all, but there's a no, part of I me love that. that wanting, yeah. wanting to know a little bit more about like how you truly arrived, give us the behind the scenes, how you came to that decision and what feedback you received from your team when, when you said you wanted to do this. <laughs> you know, what, what it was, instead of the accountable reporting, we had this audit, but then we came to understand even more deeply in the fashion space that there's about, it's reported about 75 million women around the world that are in manufacturing of fashion. And they represent about 80% of all the labor, but only 2% of them earn a living wage. So that means 98% of the clothes that we're wearing from around the world are made by somebody that has to work two to three jobs to make ends meet 60 hours a week. And really they still aren't making ends meet. And mm. that was atrocious to me to think that we were involved in an industry like that. And, and yes, we were managing our own supply chain, but then the question became, well, how can we impact the industry? How, how could we, if we dream big, how can we actually solve this problem worldwide? Is that possible? And what we came to was, is that we need to share with our consumers a data point on wages that will help them understand quickly if we're in the right place or not and, and what the right place to be is. 
And that right place we determined was what's called a living wage. Um, what we wanted to not report on was something like an average wage. You'll hear early mm. on, Bernie Sanders was calling out Amazon hardcore for saying what their average wages were. An average wage does not protect the person at the bottom of the wage scale at all. Um, because their minimum wage at the time was 8 to $10 in some areas where that you just couldn't make a living on that, right? Um, so we wanted to kind of have that same kind of call out to the industry and say, look, we've got, here's the living wage in Ethiopia. It's 4,000 ver at that point. And we have some that are literally half of that, that we're working with them to get them to a living wage. And we've got some of them that are above the living wage. Um, and so we would put out this reporting and there was greater detail on it. When I told the team, I actually remember telling my, our PR agent, I said, hey, so we're going to start publishing our lowest wages. And he looked at me like I was completely insane. Um, and he said, hey, are you trying to shut the doors at Mabel? Is that your goal? Uh, and I responded with, man, I, I really think that consumers are ready for, they know with social media and the World Wide Web and, and just how easily accessible information is, I think they know that there's more out there than we're telling them. And I think they're ready to hear from a brand to just be truly transparent, not as you have well said, marketing transparent. Um, and when, when we launched it, I did not sleep well that, for, that night uh, before we launched it. But when we did, you would not believe the praise and excitement from our consumers and applause we got from them and um, much of the industry. And, and so, yeah, I think we proved out to ourselves that consumers are ready to and, and want to hear the good, bad, and the ugly. And they want to know what the plan is, is to correct it. And that's what mm -hmm. we try to put out. And so you mentioned other brands. Um, tell me a little bit more about how other brands have responded to this report, not just in words, but in action. Well, you know, right before um, the pandemic, we had launched this thing called the Lowest Wage Campaign. And, and or it was the lowest wage challenge. And we asked other brands to join us. And we asked consumers to start calling out brands and saying, hey, join the party. Um, nobody's saying you have to be perfect, but could you please join the party and share your lowest wages and how you're working to get people up to a living wage? And uh, we did it with a partner, uh, a brand locally in Nashville named Nasolo. Um, who's very, you know, they joined alongside us. They were very excited about pushing this industry, this, this issue forward as well. And when we did the challenge, it was bizarre. Some brands totally stepped up and were ready to join, but some of the most, uh, sustainable brands in the world did everything they could to shut us down. Um, we, I remember getting on a call with a brand that I can't name, obviously sustainable with air quotes then, or, oh, massive air quotes, because okay. I had conversations with sustainability leaders, um, that are on stages all over the world asking us to not do this because it could kill their company. Um, because, 
yeah. I mean, that was a direct request um, in tears. And I just said, you know what? I'm no longer interested in being patient with pe- these women's lives. You know, like you, you need to figure it out. Um, you know, frankly, one of the, the sad things was is the, um, the pandemic shut it down. So, so the lowest wage challenge has had to take a hiatus during um, the pandemic because everybody was just trying to survive. The narrative changed, the story changed, um, and everybody was trying to survive. But, and one of the big challenges of the pandemic as well is we weren't able to visit our manufacturers in those audits that we held so sacred, right? So, and we haven't been able to reinstigate those even yet. Like Ethiopia, one of our biggest partner countries having war there, et cetera. Um, but we are figuring our way around how to do this virtually. Um, but you cannot build trust with people you do not know virtually. And, um, and that's, that's challenge that we're facing through it. So we're, we're kind of creating some baseline reporting that we can get from our manufacturers, but we're excited to get back to the day. And we think that's going to be 2023 where we can start having these on-site audits where women and laborers are able to speak freely face-to-face with a trusted source and, and that we can do these audits and get back at it. Cause I am wildly excited about repushing this effort of getting everybody to publish their lowest wages and get consumers to demand that brands do so to do demand that they do more. You know, it is terrifying when a business owner or a business has set a business model that can't sustain that level of transparency and accountability. So I'm just hearing mm-hmm. you get picturing like leaders begging you with tears, you know, and there's yeah. a part of part of me going, you know, there's again, I'm like, no, you know, but I also, I do have compassion, but it's like, how about, or you could redo your business model. And yeah. that would be a lot, right. of, a lot of heartache. It would cost, but this is like, that's how the systemic changes. It's not just marketing you know, because I, I, one of the producers of my show sent me this article, even about fair trade and how the marketing around fair trade. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh, we are, you know, we want to feel good with what we purchase and then think we're yeah. doing good. And then we're separate from what the change that really needs to happen and the people that are suffering. So I, I'll just say kind of being honest and raw, like, yeah, th- that was both an invigorating time during the lowest wage challenge, as well as just so disheartening, you know, th- there's a reality to the fact that in our, in the United States, we work very hard to put the poor in places that we don't have to look at them. You know, we want to put them across the tracks. We want to put them in different communities and, and, and business is built that way too. And, and it's, it's as if there's a mentality that says, well, at least they've got a job, right? No, I wouldn't say that about my family members or my children. So why do I say that about someone across the world? Consumerism has grown like 400% in the last 20 years, they say, and, and, and prices continue to drop. And there's only, only the laborers can get squeezed on that, you know? And so th- there's a reckoning that has to happen. And, and what my hope is, is that social media and this visibility and and an education point like a lowest wage will start to empower consumers to feel uh, that they understand clearly the impact that they're making through their purchase. That's the long-term goal. So you mentioned earlier choosing honest over perfect. 
And that sounds like a fun hashtag. Um, but when it's your business, (laughs) it is a fun hashtag. And, and, but when it comes to living that and being honest, knowing that that might cost your business, cost your reputation, what, what do you say to those folks right now saying, choose honest over perfect and let's do this together? What do you, what do you say to them? The folks that are saying, no, we can't do that. I'd say a couple of things for me personally. Um, I don't want to run a business differently than how I want to run my household. Um, that, that I want Rachel and I to run our household. I, I, I can't go to work and, and, and live in a different value set than I can in my own house. Those, those things are not easily bifurcated to me. So that's, that's first and foremost. I, it's not about my challenge to other business leaders, but I, uh, as much as it's just saying for myself, um, that's not what I want to create because ultimately I believe my children will pick up whatever false narratives I tell myself. And I don't want that for them. Like if I, whatever I fake in, in, in the impact that we say, say that we're having or not choosing honesty, you know, um, it's going to come home and it'll come home to roost. So, and, and let me be really clear. I don't think I do anything perfectly or that perfectly either. Um, but it's, it's a North star to try to attain. Right. Um, and then also, I would just try to encourage people to say, you will be shocked um, by how much your consumer will give you grace when you come out vulnerably. Not trying to flex or false humility something, but just straight up own your, your mistakes and share with them what you've learned and share with them where you want to grow as a company. They will root you on and as a business leader, uh, get excited about things like your lifetime value and your customer loyalty and all those things growing because they will, mm-hmm. they will. We have seen it as a fact. That's awesome. Whatever seems scary there is just not real. I appreciate that. One more thing I want to touch on that I'm, I'm excited about that you all are doing. And I know that my friend, uh, Natalie Borton was a part of speaking to, who is also yeah. a former, former guest on this podcast is, um, you received a lot of feedback from the community. Like Natalie was a part of that about the lack of diverse clothing size offerings. Mm-hmm. And you responded by making this change and expanding your size offerings. I know you're not a hundred percent there yet. And I know that this is a big investment and one, as I've been watching this over the years, many of the fashion industry, they just bulk at and say it's not sustainable mm. and it's not lucrative. So I'd love for you just to talk briefly. What were the stakes for you and those at Able when you made this decision to expand your size offerings? Well, you know, very specifically, it was Natalie. We were on a call and just getting feedback from them on something, uh, on stuff and, and thanking them for their voice. And, and Natalie Borden is just this really lovely voice, the same kind of a thing, a very vulnerable, open voice in the world and about what she's been through. And uh, towards the end of the call, <laughs> I had never met her. But towards the end of the call, she can be pretty blunt. And she just said, hey, so why are you choosing not to size people in, in non-straight sizing as in extended sizing? And, I, and, and this might sound unbelievable, but I don't know anything about fashion. And um, I, I, you know, I started Able because three women uh, coming out of the commercial sex industry said they wanted to make scarves. Um, but if, if they said they wanted to make coffee cups, we'd be a coffee cup company today. Um, so I, I don't, as my wife will validate, I don't know anything about fashion. So I bring that forward to that moment. And I said, 
Natalie, I honestly don't know what you mean by that. What does straight sizing mean? And what is extended sizing? And she showed me and communicated that, um, that there's, there's a size range from extra, extra large through five X upwards that we're not sizing and even extra, extra small. And that was a gut punch to me because, you know, it's, it's, it's also important to, to note, I have four daughters and, um, and, and our mission is genuinely to empower women and to create jobs for women who've overcome extraordinary circumstances. And so that empowerment is meant to, to go through all that we do. And I had no idea. Um, and then some of the staff members, when I talked to them about it and the design team said, yeah, we've said it before. You just missed it, which is highly possible and likely. Um, and, and so the more I dug in and understood it, sat with the design team, they were super excited about the opportunity to do this. It was on all of their hearts anyways. And, and I just said, well, let's go, let's do it. Damn the costs, you know, we, we just have to do what the right thing is. And, um, and so we did, and, and there was a significant front end investment around it, but I would say that investment was more time than anything. And the mm. team did an incredible job of getting, I think it is 66% of our sizing up to, um, uh, three X mm -hmm. this fall. Um, mm -hmm. and I think the plan is to be at a hundred percent up to five X by next fall. And so again, it's not going to be perfect because it's not an easy process, fitting, getting feedback, you know, a design calendar takes a full year, but it's gone great to this point. And we're really thankful for the opportunity to outfit everybody. That's thank you for sharing that or working towards outfitting everybody. Yeah. And, and I know you said like, you know, damn the cost, but there, there were costs, but you know, it was, I was struck by like, it was mostly with time. And I think it's amazing how much we are, you know, burdened by urgency and efficiency mm. and yeah. that, you, you know, you flip the script here. Like this is, this is urgent and it's the most efficient thing to do to be aligned with your mission to make this decision. So it was urgent. It was the most, that's, I love how you're saying that because it was, it felt urgent. It felt like, hold on. We are making people feel excluded. Uh, no, that is not who we are or what we're about. Just by how they exist and how they show up in the world. So I appreciate I appreciate you unpacking that. So as we as we wrap up, I'd love for you to talk about your definition of success and how it's mm. changed from when you started able to where you're at today. Oh man, you know, I don't want to sound like the. Um, don't want to sound like I've always been on track because I'm not. And I've, I've been trying to figure this out all along. Yeah. I mean, it's really simple. I, I did, um, you know, I, I did have a vision that money was the most, the, the reason to have a job that it's going to make a better life for me. The more money that I earn, um, that, that was the pure, pure definition of success. And, and my script got flipped when it, when it turned to, um, you know, are you, are you trying to seek the, the credit from God or are you trying to seek the credit from men and people? And, and what struck me was, is because I wasn't a person of faith at that point, when I heard that question, my question was, my thought was, is there any other reason to do it, but for the praise of man? I mean, don't, isn't it all about 
being big time and awesome. And, um, and I had quite a period of conversion in my life. I traveled the world. I saw poverty in Peru where people lived in little tin shacks and little children were throwing dirty water in their faces to clean up. And, um, and I realized my values were off. And so when we started able, you know, one of the, one of the things that I, I remember in an interview I had a few years back, somebody said, now, how did you develop this really progressive? What was your strategy with having this progressive work schedule and, and flexible schedule and, you know, nine to five, like creating flexibility with PTO, et cetera. What was your strategy? And I was like, man, do I have to say something really smart here that sounds strategic? Like what I knew about organizational development. And I decided, well, no, I'll just tell the truth uh, because I wanted flexibility personally. Um, and I wanted to, you know, not go until nine o'clock because I wanted to take my kids to school and make breakfast for them every morning. So, you know, that origin um, is, is what was, was, was kind of my personal definition of success when starting ABLE is, and, and it's something I've been working out all along, right? Like I never, I never wanted it to be that, um, that my kids felt like I was choosing work over them, but they, they saw balance in me. And, and so that's been a, a growing effort all along. And there's been hiccups along the way. There's been those times like 2014 where I wasn't balancing it well, and I didn't have it right in my head. But um, as you rebuked me with, and I fully agree, the journey is graceful and be graceful with yourself on the journey um, because I'm, I'm still going to have trip ups, you know? I mean, our upcoming economy might prove that out soon, but um, in the midst of it, I still want to be on that definition of success that as you said, and I've said that my family's my barometer. If this is going well, and I can go out to the world and strike from there. I mean, I mean, Barrett, I cringe when I look back at myself too. Don't get me wrong, but I just don't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, I always like, that's my barometer. It's like, okay, if I'm cringing, I know I've grown. <laughs> it's like, okay. Yeah, but it's like, I hope I didn't well do said. too much harm in the process, but oy, okay. All right. I'm not there well anymore. Whew, okay. What else do I need to work on? All right. So I've got a set of quick fire questions that I love to ask guests at the end of my interview. And I'd love to start with what are you reading right now? Oh man, I'm not reading anything right now. I have read <laughs> something in the past, but right now, um, as, as we talked about earlier, am I able just to claim busy right now? And, um, I'm, I'll tell you what I'm reading a lot of is fourth, fourth grade, first grade and, uh, sixth grade homework. There we go. We're in it. I'm reading a ton of that. Tis the season. Yes, we're back at it here too. So what song are you playing on repeat right now? Um, And also with Four Daughters, the song that I'm playing mostly on repeat is every single morning we blast the song Happy from Despicable 2. (laughs) Or no, Despicable Me, first one. We just sing the song Happy and dance it out every single morning before we head to school. You know, dancing it out is a leveler. It is a leveler. My kids are older and they're like, mom, please stop. I'm like, I can't, can't stop, won't stop. Sorry. Um, best TV show or movie you've seen recently? Um, Devo. Devo oh, is yeah. so good. Have you seen it? It's on Netflix. Yeah. 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 It's, it's adult worthy for sure. <laughs> Favorite 80s movie or piece of 80s pop culture? Um, Lucas. Do you remember Lucas? Oh my gosh. Yes. I've not thought about Lucas. So good. 
there's that, a lot of oh, what's his name? You know, Charlie still- Sheen and um, Corey Haim, if I remember yeah. correctly. Yeah, so I was to say Corey Haim, but I don't think he's longer. And Carrie Green. Yes. Yeah. Redhead. Hey, gotta represent two <laughs> percent of the world's population. What is your mantra right now? Um, I that's a great question. What what am I telling myself these days? Um mm-hmm. I, I I I mean, there's that big buck, like it's gonna be okay. I'm I'm definitely in a in a in a in a in a, in a phase right now where um I just have to remind myself it's gonna be okay. Especially with the economy doing what it's doing, I hear you. What yeah. is an un- unpopular opinion that you hold? I mean, along the lines of wages and making sure everybody's paid a living wage, um, it is, you know, it is an unpopular initial opinion to start raising wages every time that happens. We just recently had to do that in Nashville because the living wage increased, um, and. And what I would say is it sounds initially unpopular, but the the beauty of the ABLE team is they embrace it and they get after it and they um, figure out how to make those costs fit in. And um, and sometimes it gets passed on to the consumer. And I think if you're, we're transparent with our consumers and saying, hey, there's a price hike coming and here's exactly why, um, they'll embrace it. So it doesn't sound popular at first, but it always lands. Who or what inspires you to be a better leader and human? Oh, my children. My children, uh, you know, I was just, <laughs> I love having girls. I was just recently taking two of my daughters to school and, um, one of them was in uh, third and the other in fifth grade. And I was telling the fifth grader how proud I was of her because she was doing a really good job in school at focusing where she had struggles with that in the past. And as I told her, I was proud of her, her little sister, Marion looked over to her as a third grader and said, Lena, I'm so proud of you. I love you so much. And I was just like done in the rear view mirror as I veered off the street into a pole. Um, that didn't really happen, but, um, <laughs> and I just think watching them and how, how freely vulnerable and loving they are um, just makes me so excited about being uh, a better person. I love it. I can see that joy on your face too. <laughs> Barrett, this has really been a pleasure. Thank you for your time. Thank you for kind of taking us behind the curtain, not only in your business, but in your story. I know so many people are going to benefit from so much of what you shared. I've learned a lot. I feel even challenged in some areas. So I really thank you for your time. Likewise. It means a lot to share this stuff. And I, I am thankful for what you're doing in a voice in the space that says, hey, you are not alone. You know, you are not alone. What an, what an important message that um, is the very essence of what you're creating here. So thank you for doing what you're doing as well. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much, Barrett. As I learn more and more about how I consume for comfort and how I lean on what I purchase to make myself good and moral, I can better detect savvy marketing and branding that plays to my values and also my fears. I can also ask better questions. When we ask questions that go beyond how a company makes us feel versus taking their promises at face value, we can deepen our practice of conscious consumerism versus just the identity of it. I so valued Barrett meeting my questions with answers, data, processes, and his own reflections for growth and learning. 
And again, his push for transparency and honesty over perfection is not an easy one, but it is refreshing and sets a standard that calls up many in his field and beyond. So I'm curious for you, what matters to you when you're making purchases with a business or an organization? What does being a conscious consumer mean to you in your work and life? Which brands that you love would benefit from a deeper understanding on how they do business beyond their claims? When as a business owner, you're asked hard questions, it can be a vulnerable experience to share less than perfect results with your team and your community. But as Barrett said, it is better to be honest than perfect. And this is the work of an unburdened leader. Leading is hard. Leading is also often controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, and your boundaries. Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence, clarity, and calm, and even push the edges to your mental well-being. Now, I know you don't mind making hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Now, leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. Leading today, in fact, is probably one of the hardest things to do. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. So internal emotional practices and external systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism and overwhelm at bay and foster a hope that is both actionable and aligned. So when the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then unburdened leader coaching is for you where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. And today's conversation is a powerful example of this. Now to start your unburdened leader coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining this episode of the unburdened leader. If this episode meant something to you, I'd be honored if you went to leave a review to rate it and to share it with someone who you think would benefit from it. You can find this episode, show notes, sign up for the weekly Unburdened email and receive free Unburdened Leader resources, along with ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com. 